Hey everybody, my name is Tyler Norwood and you are listening to The Deal Podcast. Some of the best insights, tips, tricks, and everything you've ever wanted to hear from some of the world's best investors. Today's episode, we have Sheil from Better Tomorrow Ventures. Sheil is one of the co-founders of the firm along with Jake Gibson and they focus specifically on the future of fintech. This is a great conversation. Shields the man. Lots of really useful insights for founders, VCs alike. Let's dive right into it. This is Shield from Better Tomorrow Ventures on The Deal. All right. Hey, Shield. Thanks a lot for uh, coming on the show on a Friday, nonetheless. Thanks for having me. It's awesome. So, uh, Sheila, you are one of the co-founders and a general partner at Better Tomorrow Ventures with Jake, who we actually had on our other show on Monday. Um, so just to get us kicked off, I mean, would love to give listeners a quick rundown of, of who you are and how you kind of got into the VC game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's see. I Starting way back, I, I grew up in Pittsburgh, uh, nice. went to Carnegie Mellon, uh, made software for hospitals, um, kind of like knew I wanted to be in tech at some point in the future and knew I wanted to be in business, um, but took, I guess, a little bit of a meandering path. I um, worked in consulting. I did some work in the nonprofit sector. And then um, at one point uh, when I was I was consulting, I was working at BCG, um, a friend of mine wanted to leave to start a, uh, a company and asked me to join him. And I did. That was Fee Fighters, and that was a dozen years ago. Um, at that point, I I knew like nothing about startups, <laughs> but I had to learn a lot on the fly. It, it's funny. It was only it was a dozen years ago, but it's a different world where like if you weren't in San Francisco at that time, Silicon Valley at that time, um, yeah. you just didn't have didn't know anything. And like yeah. I was just like reading TechCrunch every day to try to learn stuff, and yeah. there weren't that many resources. Um, but you know, we we did all right. We we got acquired, um, and then I moved out to California. And yeah. at that point, I I thought um, you know when I when I was uh, on the other side of the table meeting with VCs. I thought, oh, it'd be cool. I like what those guys are doing. I love yeah. the VC side of things. But when I moved out here, um, I finally had a little bit of money, started doing some angel investing and loved it. And and the part I loved was helping founders at the earliest stages, just like not make the mistakes I made. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I did that. I ended up starting another company. That company got acquired. And then um, 500 <laughs> startups had invested in my first company asked me to join them. And I said, sure. Like what I love doing is helping founders. So, um, I get to do that. Then I ended up starting a fund within 500 startups called 500 FinTech. And then, um, you know, that's when I met Jake, uh, he had co-founded nerd wallet and I brought him on as an EIR. And then, um, yeah, about three years ago, Jake and I decided to set up our own shingle and, uh, start BTV. And, uh, yeah. it's been, it's been an awesome ride ever since. Yeah. It's incredible how I, uh, a lot of investors that I've had on the show so far were founders previously and then transitioned to the other side of the table. How valuable do you find that in your day to day as an investor having been a you know, two time founder? 
Yeah. Um, it's super valuable in, in a few different ways. Um, one is I think, especially at seed stage, like what we recommend is seed stage founders should work with folks who they feel comfortable with because the seed stage investor is the one that's going to give you the most critical advice when you're starting up. Um, And so I think us having that experience is helpful, but also it means that they, the founders take us more seriously because they say, Oh, these guys have done it before. Um, So that, that is really valuable. And so actually like our whole team, you know, it's not just me and Jake. We have, we have a, there's a bunch of other folks on the team and we're all operators. Um, and I think it's proven to be helpful, um, to our companies already. Just like there's a bunch of things that like, I don't know, but like maybe JC on my team knows he, um, he worked at a firm and before, you know, a bunch of other things. So, so, um, it's great to have, uh, to have that background. And then the other side of it is like, we kind of are founders now too. Like we're building our firm. It's obviously very different than being, we're entrepreneurs. We're not necessarily like founders of startups, but we think of ourselves as doing things a little bit differently than other funds. And, um, so, you know, that sense we are founders again. Yeah. Yeah. I think writing, writing, uh, checks, not code. (laughs) Yeah, with a pen instead of a keyboard. Um, I mean, I, th- I definitely think it comes through in the in the DNA of 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 better tomorrow. And I want to double click. So this is a theme that's come up a few times, and we chatted about it a little bit before we started recording. But you, you talked about um, recommending that founders like really like the seed investor that they work with. Um, that theme has come up in a lot of conversations. Is this idea of like investor founder fit? Right. Like we talk about product yeah. fit all the time is like investor founder fit. I'd love to double click on that a little bit because I see founders all the time and they like, you know, and this is kind of one of the reasons of creating the show is like trying to help improve the infrastructure so that, you know, founders who are just getting into the game, you know, like you did with your first company where it's like, I don't know any VCs. Right. So it's like, I'm going to go online yeah, and I'm gonna like, didn't know anyone. read through all these lists and get all these firm names and like build this like 300 person list and just start like cold calling people. Um, and kind of what you said is like, my recommendation is always, you know, you should be going after individual people, not firms. Um, and I'd love for you to dive in a little bit deeper about that concept of like, investor founder fit like how do you how important do you think that is and how do you think founders should go about finding that yeah it's super critical um the way i think about it is and and what i recommend to founders and this is from before i was running btv is when i was doing the accelerator um at the seed stage you should go with the investor that you have the best rapport with and that you're going to trust to give you the good good advice and not lead you astray who also has great relationships with downstream investors um and ideally is a former founder actually yeah um so i i think at seed that's really important beyond that i think there's different things that are important at series a and maybe in series b um a strong brand actually is really important because it helps 
with recruiting, which is you know often the most important things that you need, thing that you need to do. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I generally just go for price. Um, <laughs> yeah. What about um, you know this like deep pockets, right? Like at Series A, having an having an investor that can remove over the course of you know seven to ten years from the time you raise Series A to an exit, remove what would accumulate to be probably years of time out on the streets fundraising externally to have an investor who can, you know, as long as you're doing the work as a founder of like growing, finding product market fit, continuing to add excellent people to your team to say, Hey guys, we're willing to put more money in. We're willing to go out and find other investors that we like working with and, and give you the finance that you need. I will play devil's advocate on that, on oh, I love that it. for a little bit. Let's do it. So, um, so look, there, there are companies that, um, the companies where a, a tier one firm like keeps reinvesting and, uh, and like leads the next round, yep. those are the companies that could raise in a heartbeat anyway. Yeah. And I've seen the opposite where like, you know, you have the idea that like, Hey, this, this fund, uh, did that for this other company. Why aren't they doing that for this company? Yeah. Um, so so I, sign- I think signaling risk, right? Yeah. And like, you know, it's back and forth on how real signaling risk is. Yeah. Um, but I have seen it be a challenge for companies where for sure. an investor says like, I don't want to talk to them. Like I'm like, why aren't those guys leading around or yeah. something like that? And f- for, for, for anyone who's listening, like sign- signaling risk is this concept of if you have, an investor who has the ability to continue following on, it can sometimes be really detrimental to the team if they don't follow on because external investors look at it and say, well, they have the most information on this company. Like if they're not willing to put more money in, then, you know, why would we step in externally? Um, so she would love to dive in um, to better tomorrow and just give people a better understanding of the firm that you and Jake started. Um, you know, do you guys have a sweet spot on stage check size? Um, I think it's fairly obvious that you guys are focused very specifically on, you know, finance and fintech. Um, but is there any more nuance to that theme that you like to expound just to help people understand the firm? Yeah, absolutely. So we, you know, Jake and I decided to, we were both founders before, as we mentioned, we wanted to build the firm that we wish we had. And we, uh, we started fintech companies ourselves and um, had built them to a various, like, you know, built them up to a certain point. And then, you know, Jake left NerdWallet, but NerdWallet then continued on and obviously IPO'd last year. Um, My companies got to a certain stage and then got acquired. Um, So we think seed is um, our sweet spot. Um, I think like, as I mentioned, we're founders ourselves and seed is where we can have the most impact and also where founders need the most support. And so we love being that first call. Um, we, you know, we typically invest, I'd say like range is a half million to $3 million. Um, typically as a lead investor, a lead or the lead investor in the seed round of the company. Um, and we tend to be pretty hands-on and are there for the life of the company. You know, we have companies that are series C, series D companies that we're still on the board of involved in. Yeah. And the focus is on 
fintech is there are there any like adjacencies to fintech that you guys dabble in or are there any specific thesis thesis under fintech that you're really ex- like focused on um yeah i would say so a couple of things like one we're not necessarily thesis driven as in like we're looking for a thesis we have a thesis and want to invest in a any in a company that we find that fits that thesis i'd say yeah. we're more opportunistic in that like we're open to investing in different things. But of course there are things we like and don't like. So, um, you know, we think that we're in the early innings of FinTech actually, like a lot of the stuff that you see today is largely bringing things that were offline, online, and then onto a mobile phone, right? It's like the same, it's the same thing, but it's online. Um, And I think true innovation is yet to come. And, or, you know, some of it, of course, there's a lot of it here, but there's a lot of it yet to come in the next decade. And for that innovation to happen, we, uh, we need the building blocks to be there. And so now there are companies that make it so easy to, to add these building blocks in that were never there before. I'll give you an example. Let's say you're not a fintech company, you're a vertical SaaS company. Let's say you sell software to hair salons. So, you know, your core business is software that they use for marketing, scheduling, all that kind of stuff. Let's say you charge 300 bucks a month for that software. Then you realize, hey, actually, like my customer has more needs. I can accept payments in that software and you know, they, cause they're already booking in the software. They can, we can take payments. So there's a payments layer and then you might make another $300 a month on payments. And yeah. then you realize, Hey, actually like I have a lot of information about this customer, this, this merchant. Um, and I'm already ex- accepting payments. Maybe I can be their bank account. And so you integrate with somebody like unit, um, yeah. who builds, who allows you to add a bank account into the software. And then you're like, Oh wait, like these guys are paying their stylists at the salon. Um, I could integrate with Salsa, our, one of our portfolio companies that does payroll as a service, and I can add payroll onto my functionality. So like this vertical SaaS software that started out as a $300 a month vertical SaaS, now added in a bunch of product features that are really important to that customer base that are all FinTech. And ultimately, they're probably now deriving two thirds or more of their revenue from FinTech. So they, what started out as a SaaS company really became a FinTech company. And we've yeah. seen that with like Toast and Shopify and many others. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, I mean, it's interesting to think about like there's, especially in that example, there's sort of like these two axes of innovations. There's like these horizontal building blocks like Salsa, for example, and they say like, Hey, we're just making like this one piece of, what every business has to do easier and more accessible, et cetera. And then there's a second vector that's, that's enabled by having those building blocks to like really focus on verticalizing services and making like building products that are incredibly focused on one specific vertical stack that just like far and above can outcompete with any other service provider that's not verticalized because they like so deeply understand the specific problems of that you know, hair salon vertical or veterinarians or whatever it is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So she would love to parlay that over and, and, and talk a little bit about uh, like, what does great 
look like for you? So when you see a deal, when you see a founding team, like what gets you super pumped up? I think um, it's really, it's really founder driven. And it's like, does this person or people, have they demonstrated that they really understand the segment that they're going after? And are they, are they constant learners that are teaching me about, about the, the business and, and the space? Um, and are they able to clearly articulate their vision? I think this is the most important thing. Like there's so many people who can't clearly articulate their vision and I don't understand quickly what, it, what they do. And I'm thinking like, if I don't understand what you do and I'm a FinTech investor, then <laughs> how the hell are your customers going to understand what you do? How the hell are your next set of employees going to understand what you do? And yeah. then, you know, how's the next, how are the next set of investors going to figure out what you do? Yeah. So I think that is really critical. And the best founders are just very clear and articulate in, in, in knowing what they're building and, and, and how to, how to show that off. Yeah. You mentioned like the, like learning something. I love, um, Josh at <clears throat> Lux. He has this wait, what he does. these like, wait, what tweets when they announce, portfolio companies, it's, it's almost become like a formal part of their diligence process is like they get super pumped up when the, the investment committee has a wait what moment where the founder like presents a slide and you're like, wait a minute, like how big is that market or how fast is it growing or how, <laughs> how few options are there for, and you go down into these like very esoteric fields and then realize that like if you go upstream enough in something that seems boring or seems small, like there are huge markets all over the economy and there's like really interesting nuggets of opportunities sitting in all of them uh, and the founders being able to bring that. And to your point from a vision perspective, like lay it out and say like, all right, first I'm going to teach you something about the world that you didn't know Then I'm going to explain to you why there's an opportunity. And then I'm going to weave a vision of how we're going to build a company to capture that opportunity. Totally. That's, that's totally <laughs> nailed it. I think Josh does it, is an incredible storyteller. Does it, does a really oh, good yeah. job. of? of I mean, his quarterly letter, like I stay up late at night thinking about his quarterly letters and I'm like, how, how could I ever, like, I want to be able to do that, but just like the depth, <laughs> the depth of his thinking and his narrative and his vocabulary is just in, incredible. Um, but on the, so on the vision piece, I think it's interesting. I'd love to double click on that because I actually, so to, to, you know, counter to what you said. Um, so, you know, Antler, we're even further upstream than you guys. We, you know, focus on pre-seed or like pre-pre-seed, like pre-team. Yeah, you guys are super early, and yeah. One of the really interesting things there is I see a lot of founders get overly distracted by the vision and they don't really build or test a business. So they like spend all this time building this like academic study of where there's an opportunity. And my question for them is always like, that's great. I'm super excited about that, but I can't invest in a study on where there's opportunity. I can invest in founders who are going to be able to build a business to capture that. Value. Like I a hundred percent believe you that there's a billion dollar company that can be built in the space you've presented in this pitch. I haven't seen a single slide which indicates to me that you 
have the ability or are even really focused on building a business to capture that value. Um, and so yeah, I'd love to double click on the vision piece because I think a lot of times founders hear like, well, VCs want to hear this like grand vision. And, and what ends up happening is th- like they end up piling details on top of it as opposed to like refining it down into like crystal clear, very simple insight vision piece. So can you talk a little bit more about like the vision and what great looks like to you there. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, at seed at the stage we play, sometimes it's okay to have to say like, this is an amazing team and we're going, we're going after this prop problem area. We don't know exactly how we're going to solve it. I think sometimes that's okay, but um, you have to have like a really exceptional team for that. Who's like, had success before. Um, if you're a new team, I expect that you've done a lot of homework and done the customer development that I, you know, that like proves or, or at least has early signals that there's something there and I need to see that. And, um, and you know, it depends of course, like there's some variables here where like pricing, is it a pre-seed round or is it, is it a seed round or like, is it, it, like the stuff that you guys do is earlier. So maybe they, they haven't done that and yeah. you guys give them a little bit of money and support and that, that helps them get there. But yeah. I do want to see an articulation of like, here's the problem. Here's a hypothesis we have on the solution and here's how we're going after it. And here's the initial research we've done. And, uh, and like we've spoken to customers, that sort of thing. Yeah. Like we've proven there's a real, I always, I do this presentation where I there's like a two axis chart. The X axis is time and the Y axis is like the size of your company. And I sort of talk about like, all right, there's like a big circle with red marker up in the top right corner. And that's your vision. And that's the story you're telling to an investor about like, this is where we're heading and this is what the world looks like if we succeed. And that's great. And I want you to have like a really clear vision of that, but it's equally important for you to have a vector. And that's like how I think about the business. And I try to separate out like the vision and then like your first business. And it's like this line of like, this is what we're building to start aiming ourselves up at that top. Right. And sort of like the way I always imagine a company being built is like, you start with that first business and you get the slope as high as you possibly can towards that, you know, big red circle in the top. Right. And then you continue finding ways to improve that business. But like you talked about with the hair salon, you actually open up opportunities to like add more vectors, which like some to create like a higher slope. So you're like, Hey, now we could actually start doing these payments. And now we could actually start doing their payroll. And what ends up happening is like, it's actually a bunch of little tiny businesses stacked on top of each other. And like each incremental business is only made possible because the first business you built gave you distribution or a reputation or access to some sort of information that allowed the second business to happen. Absolutely. Yeah, it's so true. And and also like, you know, we, we tend to, uh, like businesses that have a large TAM to begin with, but there are other businesses where like you start in one sector, you nail that and then go after adjacencies, kind of like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay. So shield, this is if a founder gets a call with you, we're talking about like what you really like to see. So let's take one step back and talk about what do you think the 
and this very, I've actually been really surprised that from like investor to investor, how much variability there is and how people like founders to sort of reach out to them. What do you, for you personally, like what's the ideal way for founders to get in touch with you and say like, Hey, she'll have a fintech company. It's at the right stage. I'd really love for you to take a look. Do you have a preferred way is, you know, what does great look like for you there? No, I don't have a preferred way. Um, we have invested in companies that just sent a cold email or I think even, even tweet, um, you know, obviously it's important that you're articulate and, you know, like my, I get a lot of, uh, DMS on Twitter that are so inarticulate or people just like, (laughs) I want to, that people just say, I want to pitch you my startup. And it's like, what a freaking waste of an opportunity. (laughs) You could have told me what your startup is. And then, (laughs) you know, like 90% of, no, like 90% of them are not like, are completely didn't do any research on us and don't know anything about like, do your research. And you're on one of those lists they exported from the internet. (laughs) Yeah. Like don't waste my time. But you know, if, if you have something that is that you, you want to get in front of us, like do it in a good way. And, you know, we've had multiple folks do that. Um, and, and, we've made investments in it. And it was like, um, it was basically like the subject line was like, here's what we're doing. <laughs> and, and then it was like, here's why the, 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 the body was like, here's what we've done so far. Here's why I think you guys are the perfect fit for us. And they just like nailed it. And, yeah. you know, I took the call, dug in and I was like, Hey, this is, this is great. Um, yeah. and you know, I had no connections to these people. Yeah. I think like the, the sort of relevance piece, I mean, this is, um, you know, going back in college, I sold Cutco knives. Door to door. <laughs> amazing. <Man>. What amazing <laughs> training. <laughs> so I tell everybody, I was like, look, if you want to be a good salesperson, it's really simple. Go to, uh, vector market. I forget what the company is called. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Vector uh, marketing. I think vector marketing find the closest office to you, go sign up, do their sales training and spend six months selling knives door to door. And I guarantee you'll be a hundred times better salesperson in anything in the whole world. And one of the (laughs) key concepts, so there's like two, there's multiple stages, but one of the first things you learn is like outreach. So like you have to schedule, Cutco doesn't let you go door to door. You have to actually like call people and schedule schedule them. Yeah. And after you get through like all of your friends from high school's parents, right? they're like, Hey, what's up? It's Tyler. Like, can I come to your house? You, you start calling strangers basically. And one of the most valuable things I ever learned is to like immediately tell people how you got their contact information and why you're reaching out to them. Right. Cause it immediately like lets people put down their defenses. Cause you get reached out to so much. And it's like, if I don't know why you're reaching out to me, I'm automatically going to be like super skeptical. Like, are you trying to scam me? What are you trying to do? And so, you know, what you mentioned, I think how powerful it is to do a little bit of research and, you know, say like, Hey, Sheil, I'm reaching out. I saw you're at BTV. I saw you at 500. I've saw you started a few FinTech companies yourself. I'd really like to introduce you to what we're building here it is. Um, I think you would be an amazing investor because of your experience as a founder in the fintech world, blah, blah, blah. Like how much 
more powerful that like how effectively that cuts through the noise of just like hey shield would love to pitch you my startup and you're like what the fuck am i supposed to do with that <laughs> exactly <Yeah. laughs> exactly like, i don't have enough time uh i don't have enough time in the week to take meetings and hope that what you're referring to and that i would love to pitch you my startup is anything close to something that's interesting for me or in the right stage or this and that so just that like lit yeah i tell founders like if you invest that time up front to like figure out who Sheil is before you email him and like add a little personal touch of like, I'm reaching out to you, Sheil, specifically. Um, I'm not just like sending you an email because you showed up on a list. How effectively that cuts through the noise of what investors generally see. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and, and that little bit of investment can save you so much time on the back end with just this way higher conversion rate and so much more productive. Like the worst thing when you're fundraising is having a meeting and 10 minutes in realizing that this investor doesn't like you and is not a good fit for your company anyways. And you're just like dragging, wasting everyone's time meeting to try to like protect your reputation. Yeah. It's interesting how many people will just say like, Hey, can I buy you a coffee? Can I pick your brain? Can I have five minutes of your time? And it's like, you, you're missing the chance in that first message. Tell me yeah. what you do and make sure that it's worth our time. Yeah, exactly. It's like, are you a Jehovah's witness? Are you going to pitch me a startup? Is that startup yeah. even in the, are you the, selling the me Cutco line? knives? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. because the Cutco knives are well-trained. Cutco knives, uh, reseller, sellers Super are trained. well-trained. I would never do that. I sold Cutco knives. I learned better. Um, yeah. Maybe cut, Cutco knife, Cutco knife sellers and like Mormons, <laughs> like they know, you know, yeah, the exactly. Mormon missionaries know how to sell. Yeah. So there's like two, two things for me that like automatically give you brownie points. And they're like very, very different things for founders. Number one is first or second generation immigrant to the United States. Like this totally. is totally. This is a whole three hour podcast that you and I should do, but living yeah. overseas, coming back to the United States, like I am a firm believer in like the development of the like third culture of these, like, I, I just think like first and, second generation, first and second generation immigrants and not just to the U S anywhere are totally proportionally successful as founders. Yeah. And number two is if you've ever sold Cutco knives, I'm like, yes, at least I know you know how to sell stuff. <laughs> so like, tell me the other things about you, but like, it's a big check mark for me. Completely. Yeah. It's so true. Um, and, and I would say like, um, I think we probably disproportionately have, have invested in, uh, folks who, who lived in a third culture. Like it's interesting how many, um, of our founders actually have lived in India I know you lived in yeah. India for a while. Yeah, um, I lived in not only India. I lived in Gorgon for almost a year. Lived yeah, in the, lived in the in the cut in Haryana. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like we have founders in Brazil. Like somehow we have founders all over the world that have lived in India and like went there to try like to try to build something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. No, I, I I totally agree. I think there's. There's so many Desi founders who join our batches here. And I, you know, Perna, um, she's from Hill Station outside of Delhi. She's an associate partner that runs Austin here. And I always tell her, I'm like, you know, I don't know what percentage, but I always tell Perna, I'm like, Desi is the future. Like, yeah. <laughs> and if, if you're not, if your family is not from India, you should go live in India for a year and then start a company. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually don't even mean, 
Indian people though. Actually, like we, I mean, just having like, spent time in India, having spent time, like, like oh, yeah. white people, Latin people who've just spent time yeah, yeah. there or, or somewhere abroad trying to build something. Usually it's often India or Southeast Asia, which I know you've also lived in. Yeah. Yeah. It's like living in India is like the physical equivalent to starting a startup. Like it's exciting. It's chaotic. There's opportunity everywhere. It's like, it's it, it like really gets you, uh, physically and mentally and emotionally prepared for what it's like <laughs> to start a startup. Totally. <laughs> I love that. Um, so moving on, any, 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 anything else? I mean, you know, we have a lot of founders that listen to this. Um, so any, any other thoughts just, and maybe not even specifically for you, but just like any other thoughts on founders who are going out, starting their seed fundraising process, uh, any other thoughts in all of your experience that you think people should take away from this? I think it's a lot of stuff we talked about, which is like clear articulation of your vision. Um, yeah. find the investors that are right for you. Um, do your homework uh, on the investors, but then also have make sure you've done the customer development because I think like the worst thing is if you haven't done the work, why would you be wanting to invest years of your life into something that isn't going to work? Like yeah. that's, that's the thing for me is make sure that it's worth your while and you're building, you think you're building something that's going to be successful. Um, yeah. There are folks who you meet, and it feels like they're just like going through the motions and doing it just to do it. And obviously like, yeah. that's not what we invest in. Yeah, exactly. And so I tell founders, like all the things that you think VCs need, like do it for you and then communicate that to a VC. Don't do it for the investor. Like I, I, I am quite excited about like this correction and a little bit of return to discipline and return to quality in the VC world, because I feel like on both sides, there was a lot of people who were like just, playing the game and going through the motions and doing what they thought was needed. And I think like actually building a startup is the total opposite of that. Totally. So there's true. no playbook. There's no, you know, best practices. It's, it's like, do you really want to build this company and have you showed that you have the vision and the capability to actually do it? And then if so, it's like a really exciting opportunity, but you see a lot of stuff where it's like, why, why do you care about this problem? Right? Like what are, are is this a LinkedIn? Is this a LinkedIn notch for you? Or like, are you actually <laughs> yeah. really excited to spend the next 10 years solving this specific problem? Totally. Abs- absolutely. So she let's trans transfer over. Uh, let's get into the fun stuff. So I t- told you I'd ask you this question. Um, what are, so there's kind of two ways to ask it. Number one is like, what are you really excited about over the next 10 to 15 years? Or what is something that you think is going to happen that most people aren't aware of? Ooh, that's a fun question. I like the um, second one. Cause I really like to get into like controversial opinions of like, um, like I talked to I guy and I think of anything, ventures but yeah, give me week, get, jog my head. Like, I talked to guy on at surface ventures last week and he was like, um, his, like most people aren't aware of <laughs> essentially where he arrived is that like, we're already in world war three, but the war of the future is fought on the internet and via information. And the, the nuclear arms race of our time is quantum computing and countries that achieve post quantum cryptography 
versus companies that don't achieve it, there's going to be an equivalent power disparity as there were with nuclear weapons, but in the information realm. Yeah, (laughs) that's good. That is really good. So let's start, let's start off. Uh, This can, this can generally, it evolves pretty organically. Let's start off with the easier one. Just like, what are you really excited about the next 10 to 15 years? Like what gets you pumped up? So I think it's like, it's continued innovation and infrastructure. So like everything, financial services today is all like kludgy hacks on top of yeah. stuff that was built in like the fifties and sixties. <laughs> yeah. And like, like the ACH, ACH infrastructure is outrageous. Yeah, it's outrageous. <laughs> um, and it's actually worse in the United States than it is elsewhere because we had a head yeah. start and like things were kind of working like kind of working. So we, we didn't like rebuild anything from scratch versus if you look at some of these other markets, mobile money is so prevalent because they didn't have cards that work easily. Yeah. Can you, so can you, just for people to understand, cause this is really great insight from someone who spends all their time. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like the U S adopted ACH in this check system and it's like now, holding us back and other markets basically skipped over it, but now it's an advantage in the current paradigm. Yeah, exactly. So basically in what's crazy is ACH, it means automated clearinghouse. So it's how um, banks process their transactions with each other. And um, I think it's like from the sixties and, um, the idea it was it was originally like a replacement for checks, and what's absolutely crazy is that you know we still use checks in this country. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like people still pay their rent by dropping off a check at an office. It's so weird, um, but <laughs> it's it's basically a bunch of it's actually like technology, right? Like there's an initiation of a transaction it goes to a bank and there's settlement that happens, all that sort of stuff. But, um, it takes time. Um, so it takes, it takes days and in other markets, it's much more real time. And actually like, that's a problem. Um, because for example, people who get paid want to get paid today. They want their money today. And so all these other businesses exist that just give you a loan in the meantime and charge yeah, like exorbitant Chime, interest Chime's rates. entire business is just built on like shitty finance infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a lot of room for uh, improvement in infrastructure um, that will create the next generation uh, that, that, that will build the building blocks. Um, so, you know, for a while, it's going to feel like everyone we want to do business with just offers us a business card, makes us a loan or helps us save a percentage on car insurance or something like that. (laughs) But eventually all these products and services are going to be digital and embedded and they won't feel like products at all. I think like they'll start to feel like part of a special tailored, tailored experience to you that's built into your life. I think that's what's coming in the next decade. So what do you like, what do you think are some of the important building blocks that need to be still solved to unlock this sort of like FinTech maximalist future? Like every, you you hear the quote, like everything, everything, like 
was it like software is eating the world and now you hear like fintech is eating the world. Like every company is going to become a fintech, a vertical fintech company. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's a lot of the building blocks we talked about before, which when we use that salon example, so there's like the, there's, um, the, the building block of payments, the building block of banking, which, you know, we've invested in unit, the building block of payroll, we invest in salsa. It's probably another building block, which is like tax. Like you could, you could, um, automate taxes. It's, it's crazy that, Taxes are so complicated in this country. It's insane. Um, Have you ever lived in Singapore? No. It's just done for you automatically, right? Dude, Singapore is just a total mind blower. Like it's a it's a red pill on like the US tax system. <laughs> so it's all done automatically, business and personal. And you can sign this piece of paper um that basically says, I give um the Singaporean government permission to just automatically deduct my taxes at the end of the year from my bank account. And so you set all that up and basically what happens at the end of the year and you can set up a payment plan if you want, whatever they deduct your taxes and they send you a letter to your home signed by like the minister of revenue that says like, Hey Tyler, here's how much we took out for your taxes. Thank you so much for paying your taxes. The country of Singapore appreciates it. If you have any questions or you would like to dispute it, here's our phone number and you can call and talk to us. And I'm like, you're fucking welcome. Like, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Oh my God, I've never been so happy to pay taxes. And then I remember when I moved back to the U S in 2019 at the end of the year, you know, I I remember my dad texted me and it was like February and he was like, Hey, just FYI, like, I know you're back in the country and you need to file your taxes. And I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. Like, what do I do? Like, where's all my information? He's like, there is no information. You have to go collect it all. And I was like, and then what do I do with it? And he's like, and then you guess how much money you owe and you send the government a check. And then a year later, they'll tell you if you're right. And if you were over, they'll mail you a check in another six months. If you were under, they'll charge you with like a heavy penalty and interest rate. And I was like, what? this is crazy. This is insane. Um, there's a fun, uh, one thing I saw was, uh, Donald Rumsfeld, um, sent a message to the IRS is in like 2014. And he said, like, I've sent in my IRS tax returns, but as in every year, it's important for you to know that I have absolutely no idea whether our tax returns and tax payments are, are accurate. I'm a college graduate. I tried my hardest to make sure they're accurate, <laughs> but everything is so complex and I have to collect all the pieces that I do not have the confidence that I know that I'm doing the right thing. And, <laughs> and like, this is like Donald Rumsfeld. <laughs> he was like creating a paper trail for himself or he's audited. He's like, look, I told you guys I didn't know what I was doing. So like, let's figure it out together. But like, I knew that I totally disclosed that to you. Absolutely. You like send in your tax returns with like warrants and representations of like, I am only 35% confident that this is accurate, <laughs> yeah. but here you go anyways. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a future, I mean, that's a, that, yeah. <clears throat> and so, I mean, more, more broadly, like in terms of like how you think people's lives will function on a day-to-day basis or how businesses will operate on a day-to-day basis, do you have sort of a vision of what that will look like in, you know, 10 years from a finance perspective? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things. There's a lot of like 
individual annoying nitpicky things that we have to do. But like, let's something that just came to mind. We just sent a wire out to a company, and like now that company, they got a bunch of different. They got probably thirty different wires for this round oh, yeah. that are happening. And they have to like go in and reconcile all of them. It's like all these small things that add up to a lot. There's like, there's incremental changes, but I think like, you know, your bank being integrated with your cap table provider, stuff like that should yeah. be possible. That isn't yet. Yeah. And there's a lot of stuff like that that's going to happen. Yeah. That's an exciting future. I mean, if you think about, like their their entire massive industries just built around the inefficiency of the financial system. And you think about like, you know, a pessimistic way to look at it would be like, well, you're killing these jobs and you're hurting GDP, but you're like, no, actually all that money is like staying in much more value creation opportunities. Like it's staying in the companies, it's staying in people's pockets, it's getting spent, it's getting invested. It's not just getting funneled out to these massive firms that are just throwing like human capital at, really dumb technology problems. Yeah. I mean, you can, you can always argue that something is going to hurt somebody and that gets in the way of innovation. So, you know, there was, uh, there's this, there's this website and a Twitter and I think Instagram thing called, uh, the pessimist archive that, mm -hmm. um, that, brings up every new technology and then all the people that railed against it. So for example, elevators were available <laughs> many years before we actually, they became mainstream automated elevators where you, you could push the button yourself. Uh, so, so first elevators and then automated elevators. And then the elevator man remained in elevators far after we needed them because yeah. you know these people <laughs> like railed against it like <laughs> you're losing the jobs for the elevator man or container yeah. shipping took away business from these guys who were packing boats and you know uh the same is true people said actually about spreadsheets would get rid of accountants but obviously that didn't play out as people thought uh, so multiply, it's fun to read on the past the of accountants yeah um <laughs> Now, what we need is what Singapore has. Get rid of these damn yeah. accounts or hire them in the government. Whatever. I don't care. I, I do not want to do my taxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, Sheila, this has been awesome. Um, really great insights. So two questions I like to end with. Number one, I know you're big on Twitter. Is there anyone that you think founders should be following? An investor, another founder, but you know, just really good thought leaders that you want to throw some throw some attention at that you think founders should be following? Mm. There's no, I mean, there are a bunch of interesting folks to follow, you know, I'll, I'll give a shout out to my partner, Jake, and I am Jake stream. <laughs> yeah. You and Jake on Twitter are funny. I don't think, I wonder how many people don't know that you guys work together and just see you banter back and forth. <laughs> That's on funny. And be like, Why are these guys always tweeting at each other? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. It's funny. All right. So, so Jake, and then second question to wrap us up, um, books, favorite books, doesn't necessarily have to be about startups, et cetera, but, um, anything you think people should be reading. Okay. So here's an embarrassing thing about me. I have not read a book in over a dozen years. Um, okay. 
my favorite <laughs> from when I was a kid was a book called Ender's Game. It's a science fiction yeah. book that I loved. Yeah. Um, I just find I have friends that are authors and they're kind of, they're telling me like they add a lot of fluff. And I, so I'm always thinking like, is this a good use of time? And I feel like for me, I get a lot more out of reading stuff on the internet and so blog do you posts. do like blinkist or do you are you more just like posts articles like just follow people directly posts articles uh is what i do don't don't read any books i, I think uh, there's merit in reading books i just don't do it yeah yeah i feel you um you got to check out we have a portfolio company at oris so you know you're like me i get How do you spell articles that? all uh, a D dash a U R I S. So I get sent articles all the time and I have like one Google instance where it's just all these tabs of articles that I want to read. And I really never <laughs> totally. get to them. Never. So add Oris yeah. is a plugin on Chrome. You drop <clears throat> the URL. It transcribes it into natural voice, adds music, you know, cool stuff. And then it sends it to your Spotify account as a podcast. So when you're on the way home, you're That's jogging, whatever, cool. you click play and your reading list just turns into like a podcast that you can listen to whenever you're cleaning the house, mowing the lawn, doing whatever. And I'm like a super user. I'm like, this is a game changer for me because there's so much stuff that I want to consume, but sitting at my computer at the end of the day and reading for an hour, it's just not possible. Like I need to get out. I need to do stuff. I need to drive home. I need to go to the grocery store. So I just pop in my AirPods click play and it just reads me. I can skip, I can like, I can, you know, take stuff off, share it. And, uh, it just reads it to me. It's awesome. It's a game changer. That's awesome. That's really cool. Well, sweet. Well, Sheila, this was awesome. I really appreciate your time and, uh, thanks for all the insights. I will, uh, put your social info on here, um, for founders who are looking to reach out to you. They now know, uh, how to DM you properly. And, yeah. uh, I really look forward to staying in touch. Wish you guys the best of luck at uh, Better Tomorrow. Thank you. Tyler, this is awesome, man. Really enjoyed it. Hey, everybody. It's Tyler again. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode. We really appreciate having you here. If you are interested in building your own company that raises venture capital, we'd love to help you. If you haven't heard about our founder studios across the world, you can learn more at www.antler.co.